Growing up with my mom who had bipolar, that was my normal. I didn't know any different. I just knew that mom had a mental illness and we did what we needed to to keep her stable. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome to Hope to Recharge. Thank you for joining us. Today I have a very special guest. As you know, I told you that as much as I thought I knew about mental health, I'm realizing how little I know, how really little I know. And I have this amazing honor to get to meet all these phenomenal people that make a difference in the world. Today, I'm speaking to Michelle Dickinson. Michelle Dickinson is somebody I met online because she wrote a book, and we'll talk about the book soon. She wrote a book, a memoir about her life, what it was like growing up with a mom that was suffering with bipolar. I can't express to you enough how much the cover of the book gives me chills every single time I look at it. The book is called Breaking Into My Life. Breaking Into My Life. If you're listening to this, you already see the book cover on picture of the episode. It's It speaks volumes. Like And in the memoir, she talks about the struggles of growing up with a mother with bipolar and her journey of forgiveness and recapturing her life. So without further ado, welcome, Michelle. Thank you for joining us and thank you for making a difference in the world. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I am humbled to be here and grateful for the opportunity. Michelle, I have to take a deep breath because I think one of the hardest things is seeing someone that you love, besides going through mental health, is seeing someone that you love so much going through mental health issues. And bipolar is something that from back in the days, they didn't really um, diagnose properly and there wasn't the proper medication or even the proper words to understand what the the patient or the the person that's going through it is going through. It's a hard topic. It's a very hard topic. And I I think that it's amazing that you wrote a book and you basically shared everything, your your raw emotions about what it was like as a little girl seeing your mother suffer. What was it like writing that book? Uh, Yeah. You know, um, growing up with my mom who had bipolar, that was my normal. I didn't know any different. I just knew that mom had a mental illness and we did what we needed to, to keep her stable. Mm -hmm. Um, When I sat down to write the book, it really forced me to recall some of the painful experiences that I had. Uh, But at the same time, it was such a great opportunity to be able to humanize mental health so people could understand it better. I think when we when we have the opportunity to understand something better, we fear it less and we have the ability to remove the stigma. So even though it was difficult, 
And it took me four long cathartic years to relive some of those vivid experiences. I do believe it was it was worth it because uh, I really take my reader on a journey with me. Um, and the greater the greater goal is we need to remove stigma in the world so more people get help. Right. Absolutely. At what point did you realize that it was not the normal? Because you said you didn't. That was your normal. I think you know as I grew older and started to experience relationships that my girlfriends had with their mothers and different family dynamics. Like when you get outside of your home, you see how other families function. Mm-hmm. And that really had me recognize that my my home life was very different. Mm-hmm. I longed for some of the experiences that I would have like at my girlfriend's houses wow. and the normal dynamics between a mother and a daughter, the love, the support. Um, my mom was you know, emotionally absent. So it was hard. Even so with bipolar, I don't know a lot about bipolar, but I just, I've been speaking a lot lately to people that either experienced it on their own or a loved one. I understand that there's a lot of ups and downs. Did you have ups that she was connected to that you can yearn for it and wait for it to come again? Yeah, exactly. So the mania and the extreme depression, right? The rapid cycling, she experienced that. And when she experienced that, so did the family. When she was um, in a great mood, it was like Disney. She was happy. um, She was energetic. Mm -hmm. She was motivated and she was joyful to be around. Mm -hmm. Um, But when she was sad, she was crying like relentlessly for hours on end. And there was nothing that you could do to console the pain. So in a lot of ways, I learned as I was writing the book, because I wanted an education on the on the illness, one that I didn't get as a child. Mm-hmm. So I learned that a lot of people who do have bipolar love the mania because it is so incredible. And what drugs tend to do is to numb both the mania and the depression and even them out. And I remember when my mom would be on drugs that it would it would flatten her. So there weren't any any highs or any lows. And she really just didn't like that. So I understood, I understood it you know, as I started to learn more. So you're saying that they love that um, mania part that they're af- afterwards are depressed about because they fall out of it and then they realized what happened and they go into deep depression from it. So why do I, they like yeah, that? I don't, so I'm not a physician and I don't know that that's the case. I just know that there's rapid cycling. So I don't know that they fall into depression because they have remorse about anything. Mm-hmm. I just know that the experience of having mania and being high and being excited and being positive and upbeat about life mm-hmm. is that they enjoy. And I think like you and I, like it feels good to feel good. So I think after those dark, you know, loomy, depressed days, that that's, that's a, like a, a reprieve. So every time she was up, she was, when she was on a high, it was manic. It was never, she was in a good mood before the manic. It was always when she's on the up, not depressed, she's manic. Yeah. Well, I mean, she had moments where she was in between. Like, you know, it wasn't always one or the other. She did have moments where she was in between the two, but I could anticipate what would be coming. Mm. Um, and it wasn't consistent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, sometimes she'd be really sad and then really happy or like then she would be neutral. It depended on the medication. Mm-hmm. She had been on so many different types of medication to normalize her emotions and her feelings that it was just always so unpredictable. 
But there would be moments where I would have snapshots of the mother that I loved who was loving back to me. Mm. So short and so in between. And I longed for those. Did you have shame growing up with her? Did you want to hide her? Did you want people not to know about her? Chapter nine of my book. I, I explained what that was like. It's hard. I was embarrassed and I kept her a secret. Mm. I didn't invite people over to my house like most kids because mm. I just didn't know how she would be. She was so unpredictable and then I'd have to explain her. So I would keep people out of my life. I really right. wouldn't tell anyone what I was dealing with at home until I met my youth group as I got older. Mm-hmm. What is the youth group? So it was a basically a, just a youth group through my church. We would get together, we would pray, and we would connect. And so we went on a couple of different retreats together, and I found it a safe place to tell my story of what I was dealing with at home. And that's when I really felt accepted and supported and loved. Wow, isn't it important? What a lesson about that youth group that gives you permission to be who you are without judgment. Right there is such a lesson in life to yes. just find that support that you can unload yourself and yes. and feel loved and support. It's wow. Yes, yes, that's a lesson number one from this podcast, I must say. It's something so minor that we probably didn't think that we would bring up, but such a vital and important part of anybody that's going through challenges. Find that support wherever it is, and it could be even from the church. Look at yes. that. So back to you. I want to go back to your childhood. I know it's in the book, but I want to discuss it um, in the podcast and give the, the listeners an idea of what comes up in the book. Did you have siblings? I had two cousins that came to live with us for about 10 years and they stayed with us. And I believe, and I write about this in the book, that that was part of the trigger that had my mom go from a balanced, I guess, a balanced state to this imbalanced uh, bipolar state. And there's theories about it out there that there's a trigger that tends to happen. And so I think there was some dra- uh, some trauma that my mother experienced long before she had me. And, you know, she, with her big heart, embraced my two cousins coming to live with us. And before you knew it, she was running a house of five people. So I think that was part of it. And that's when, you know, I write about it in the book that she went and she just became extremely strict, just very rough, very tough, um, emotionally, physically abusive. And I think it was just out of the strain of having that responsibility. How old were you when they came? Four. They're your first cousins? They were my mother's niece and nephew. Remember, I'm adopted. So these were my mother's biological niece and nephew, I believe. I believe. Or cousins. I don't know. Maybe her no, cousin's right. children. I can't remember. So we don't even know really what who they... Maybe they were also adopted. Yeah. Because give us a little bit background about your being adopted. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're mother, a single child and yeah, right. You're right, a single yeah. child. So my, my adopted mother tried to have children for many, many years. And she told me stories about how she went and, you know, had surgeries to whatever, to be able to naturally have a child. And she couldn't, she wanted a child more than anything. And they, her and my father adopted me and they adopted me when I was either six or nine months old. They adopted me from a woman who was 16 when she had me, Mm. but it was through the state of New Jersey. So my biological mother was 16. She 
you know, back in the seventies, it was a very shameful experience to have your daughter pregnant and unwed, you know? So she fought to keep me. Her mother wanted her to, you know, not have me and she fought to keep me and she gave me up for adoption. And I'm so grateful because at the age of 16, I mean, who fights for, for that, you know? So she gave me this life. My parents adopted me. And then in my early twenties, I went to the state of New Jersey and pursued a search to find her. Uh, I always wanted to know where I came from and I found her. I found her living in her family home, wow. had no had no other children, was basically waiting for me to find her. She was so incomplete. Wow. 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 Wait, mm-hmm. I need I need to recapture some information here. Mm-hmm. So your mother that adopted you is the one that had bipolar. Yes. And exactly. we're not sure if she had bipolar before before she adopted you, maybe she was, maybe it was from infertility. Maybe it was, who knows, who knows? Cause we don't really know. Cause you came into her life as an eight month old. Yeah. And the first thing you knew that was she, that she wasn't well. And then when your cousins came, when you were a little girl four, it went to even worse. Yeah. So, and then your biological mother never had children again. Right. Maybe that was like, uh, did you ever ask her why she never had children again? She just, uh, she never got married. And uh, I think she, honestly, I think she was just so incomplete about giving up a child. She wanted to find me, but didn't feel it was her place to look for me. Mm -hmm. Just never had another child. Did you keep up a relationship with her? I did. I did. So when I met her, I was in my 20s and she became a friend. Yeah. we had a good rapport. We had a really good rapport. She was such a supportive, loving person in my life, but very sick, right? So she was morbidly obese, uh, suffered from a lot of illnesses related to diabetes. She had lost toes and her Mm. part of her foot and she struggled with her health, uh, but had just had like the most beautiful heart and the most beautiful, uh, loving nature about her. Mm-hmm. And just eventually she uh, passed away due to complications uh, related to her diabetes. How old were you? Oh, wow. I must've been in my mid twenties. She was very young. She was probably what in her early fifties. Wow. Yeah. She was very young and I was, you know, but I had, I had this relationship. I had closure. She had closure. Did you have closure? Is that enough? Totally. Totally. Because you, as an adopted, as an adopted child, I always wanted to look into the eyes of the woman that gave me life. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to see some physical resemblance and it was hard because she was so heavy to see physical similarities. Like I had this, I have this beautiful friend, Robin, and I used to look at her and her mother and just be so jealous because they were both beautiful and they looked alike. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that. I wanted to be able to look into the eyes of the woman that gave me life and see myself sort of. Mm-hmm. And I got that closure and she got that closure because she got to look at me and have a relationship with a child that she had to let go of. Did you share with her your upbringing and how hard it was? Yeah. Yeah. But to, but you know, she always said, I wish I could call your mom and thank her for what a beautiful job she did in raising They never met? Never met. You didn't want them to meet? You know, when I met my biological mom, I knew I needed to keep that a secret because my mom's emotional state was so volatile and I didn't want to be the cause of her having another breakdown. Wow. So I kept that a secret. What a sensitive soul you are. It's unbelievable. 
Mm-hmm. So she never knew that you met your biological mother. Never. It was your own secret between you and your biological mother. Yes. Wow. Did you, when you met her, I, I know we're going a little bit off, but I think yeah. it's very important to understanding sure. you. When you met her, so you had only a few years to really get to know her. And you're looking back and you're like, oh my God, I had 20 years that I wasted that I didn't get to know my real mom. And maybe if she kept me, my life would be different. Oh, I thought about that so that, much. So what, what do you do with that? those unhealthy thoughts? Because they're so unproductive, right? Totally. You can't go back. It's not, and it's not your reality. Your reality is you were placed where you were placed for some reason. And that's just what happened. I mean, I think the most beautiful aspect of meeting my biological mother was that I could create a brand new relationship with her. One where I wasn't the daughter, I was a friend and she could support me in an adult way. And that's what she did, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, but when I met her, you know, the whole reunion was, I mean, it should have been on Oprah. It was incredibly emotional. How did you reach out to her? What did you say? I think you're my mom. No, I went through the state of New Jersey. And so there was a program at the time where if you were adopted through the state, you could reach out to the this one office in the state of New Jersey and tell them your story and ask them for help in uh, locating your biological parents. And I did. And within like six months, they had found her because she never married and she lived in her family home. So she was exactly where they left her. Mm. And they reached out to her and said, you know, somebody of interest, somebody you know is looking for you. And she knew exactly that it was me. Oh, really? Did she ever look for you? No. Remember, she never felt it was her place to look for me. So she waited for me to find her. But there's a difference between finding you and looking for you, like knowing that you're safe, you're alive and not contacting you versus saying, oh, I know where she lives. I'm going to spy on her, just see her face, but she won't know. I just, for her closure, I want to see the face of the person that I gave birth to. No, I don't think she ever did. She would have told me that. She did carry my baby picture with her in her wallet and she showed it to me. Who knows what road of mental challenges she went through in her life to forgive herself for giving you up for the pain of giving. She probably didn't have closure until you met her. So true. So true. Wow. Wow. So going back to your mom with bipolar, your adopting Mm -hmm. mother, when you found out that you were adopted, did you ever think, okay, she's not well. Um, This is not fair. Let me find a new mother. Countless times. I mean, there's an experience that I share in the, in this, in the book about a time when my mother was beating the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't belong here. Why am I here? Why am I here? I should be back with my with the people that gave me life. So absolutely, absolutely. I didn't want to be there. Do you feel that she loved you, really loved you? Yeah. I couldn't, um, I can't say I always felt that way because I was angry. I was really at the effects of her abuse. Mm -hmm. I was angry. There was no way I could find that. But I did a lot of healing. I went through a lot of therapy, self-discovery work. And what I got was that my mother had bipolar And that bipolar didn't define her. Her actions were consistent with her illness. And she loved me. I want to deep dive into that exact um, comment that you just made, because I find that loved ones that are living with with mental illness, the struggle is almost as hard as the mental illness. Yeah. We We give so much focus even though there's stigma, but when we remove the stigma, we give so much focus to the 
one that's suffering in the struggling with a mental illness, but we don't shed enough light on the ones that are supporting or the ones that are part of the family. I don't know how through therapy you got to closure because I, thinking of myself, I don't know if I would ever be able to forgive someone that caused me so much pain, no matter how sick they are. So how does that work, that uh, understanding that it's yeah. not them, it's the illness and dividing that in your mind when the emotion is in so much pain? Did you understand my question? It's a little bit complex, but I think it's no, so important. I do. I do. So a couple of things. It's punishing to love someone with a mental illness. I have a very dear friend of mine who has multiple diagnosis and she's abusive to people that love her, including me. So I know what that feels like. I, I, I then take myself back to what it was like to be loved by my mother, but beaten by my mother. It's punishing and caregivers need to care for themselves first. That's like such an important message I want to get. You've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you can help others. Yeah. So don't get lost in caring for them. Mm. It, you know, anyway, so I had to say that. But then the other piece is I didn't always, I didn't always have that forgiveness and compassion for my mom. I, I, you know, I struggled. I went through therapy. I married a, the male version of my mother. My therapist told me because it was familiar I went through self-discovery work. So I did um, this program called the Landmark Forum. Mm, yeah. And in that program, the biggest aha I got was that my mom was a young mother trying to raise a child who took in two other children and she was trying to do it with bipolar. So for a moment, I was able to step back and say, instead of focusing on the effects that she had on my life and how like I feel anger because, oh, I didn't do this because of her. I look at life this way. I attract these types of men and blame, 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 blame. I took a step back and said, man, she was doing the best she could with what she knew. And she had bipolar disorder. So when you, when you can step back and recognize that people genuinely do the, what they know, and you know, she was affected by her parents. Mm. I think it takes something for you to get out of your own space and look at it from the outsider looking in at what life could be like for them um, to have a different perspective. Now, I also watched the documentary, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive, written, I think it was uh, a movie with Stephen um, Fry, mm -hmm. where he gave vivid insight to what it's like living with this disease. So I could really understand how hard it must have been for her. So I think with, with a lot of compassion and education and knowledge, you can start to say, yeah, that's what she did to me. But then also look at how hard it was probably for her to just, to just deal with life, how hard it was for her to see the beauty in, in a new day, let alone raise a daughter. So basically you're saying dig deep into the compassion Yes. The others versus the self sorrow for yourself. Yes. Of feeling, yes, take care of yourself, put boundaries, get your oxygen, pamper yourself, whatever the loved one is not giving you. Yeah. But at the same time, try to tap down into their pain and their struggle and understand that it's not personal at all. Right. And right. they're suffering so much and they're trying the best they can. I had a very wise leader say to me that the hurt hurt others. The hurt hurt others. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that, she was hurting. And that's what she knew to do to other people because she was hurting. 
Mm. It doesn't excuse it. Please, it doesn't excuse it. Oh, because, absolutely. Because I was affected in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And I, I acknowledge the negative impact it has on my life. I do. I, I struggle with some of it still to this day, but I also have great compassion for her doing the best she could with what she knew. Did she have meds? Along her life? Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, you I mean, mentioned that she yeah, numbed she, her and numbed her. Yeah, she was on them and then she was off them. And the, and the biggest challenge with people who have a mental illness is they think that, oh, I feel great. I can take myself off. And then, but really, they feel great because they're on them. Mm. So, and then, you know, you know, nowadays there's such great treatment out there where you can get a shot, which takes away the compliance perspective of having to take a pill. Mm-hmm that keeps you normal, keeps you normalized and regulated. So your moods don't fluctuate mm-hmm. Give that aspect. Um, but she, back in the day, it was it, the drug stopped working or did she t- stop taking the drugs? <laughs> it was always trying to figure out like, do we need new medication or does she just really need to just take her, her, you know, regimen? Unfortunately, with, I understand, I don't know a lot and I'm not in the medical field, but I understand from speaking to a lot of psychiatrists that bipolar is something that you always have to be monitored with a good psychiatrist. It's not something that it's a one-time quick fix because our bodies change, especially for women with the hormones changes. Things change. Also, the pharmaceutical world changes and some things get better and the side effects can be terrible side effects. We think just give them the drugs, calm them down. But we don't think about the other side of the side effects that must be also, as you said, debilitating her. Like she was just numb. She was was like plateau, which is sad to see. She hated that. She felt numb to life and just, you know, I can't imagine what that's like, not having positive experiences and, you know, joyous moments. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what, those are the side effects. And she would say, oh, I have a dry mouth. Look at all this weight I'm gaining. There were a lot of side effects that really were a deterrent. And But medication's gotten better. Right. I think there are still some, but um, with advances, I think things are definitely, um, people are able to be treated more effectively. Let's talk about your father. I didn't hear you mention him. Yeah. So my adopted father, I will always say this, was a saint. He, he stayed by my mother's side and took care of her. And, and he was there. We would um, strategize about caring for her, but he worked a lot. He spent a lot of hours working. He worked for IBM, had a really long, great career with IBM. Mm-hmm. You know, he left a lot of the raising of us to my mother Um, and he was providing, he was focusing on providing for us. So he was such an amazing contribution in that way. He himself, I don't think really ever understood the disease. Mm -hmm. You know, here he had to take his wife to Carrier Clinic, which is a local mental health hospital that couldn't have been a fun experience for him. Right. Um, And, and he would yell at her to snap out of it. And that's just a reflection of not knowing that people with mental illness, they can't snap out of it, you know? And then he also you know, he was, he was there for me as much as he could be. He had his moments where he would say to me, if you just be a good girl, she wouldn't be so upset. Oh my God. That's so painful. It is. It is painful. Because then you think to yourself, God, you know, I have more control over this than I thought. And I need to be a better girl. You know, I need to be good. (laughs) How do you get that out of your mind now? Is he alive? No, both of my parents have passed away. Okay. I look at it now. I look back at it now and just go, man, like, my father didn't know as much as he could have, you know, it's unfortunate. And it's just a reflection of not knowing and being, you know, unaware of what mental illness is for someone, but he never left her. I, I, I praise him so much because of 
how she was to stay in that marriage as long as he did, to be with her through so many downs, that's, that's dedication. That's love. So that's my next question. Do you think he loved her? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. He stayed with her. He loved her. He was, he was loyal. You know, he came from a family where the men in the family maybe weren't so loyal. Right. And he was very loyal to my mother. What do you think it was that kept him so strong? Did she love back? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. I think too, marriage expectations, I think are unique, you know, relationships are unique. <laughs> uh, for some, for some reason it worked for them. You know, they, they stayed together no matter how challenging it was. I want to um, say something because you said you described him as a saint <laughs> and then you brought like a few words that were like shocking um, you said that he would say to you, if you were better, it wouldn't, she wouldn't react so bad. So I love the fact that you d- decided to highlight his unbelievable ability to stick by her, even though he was human and broke down sometimes and said harsh words that you still remember as a little girl till today. And he probably, and telling uh, somebody that's struggling with mental health, say snap out of it. That's a very hard thing to hear. So you chose to see him as a saint, even though he did very, said very harsh words, which I think is remarkable and something that we all need to learn from that even though we do things that are so painful and hurtful, try to find the ultimate saint in that person. Look for the greatness. Yeah. I mean, my father. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm clear that his knowledge and awareness of mental illness were what caused him to say those things, his lack of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. What he had, the resources. And maybe um, him staying at work all those hours was his escape and coping mechanism to come back and he recharged at work, disconnected. And if you said he worked for IBM, he was probably very technical person, not so emotional, Yeah, more like numbers, theory, but not emotion. So for someone like that, it's hard for them to connect to illness. Yeah. Really admirable that he stuck with it. Yeah. He's a good man. I mean, he definitely was. My aunt and I talk about him to this day. He was a good man, but he couldn't hug. We used to laugh about how he wasn't a very affectionate person. He would like, you would lean into him and he'd like pat you on the back. Oh, really? (laughs) Couldn't give you a warm hug. Do you feel like he loved, loved, loved you? Sure. Absolutely. I absolutely, I bought so much joy and he was so proud of me, you know. That's amazing. Who passed away first? My mother. Yes. And then there's this beautiful love story, which I won't spoil because it's in the book. And then he met his second wife who is still in my life and I love her to pieces. And he had such joy with her while he was here. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Is it hard to see that? Yeah, for sure. Because he deserved more happiness than... It was almost like kind of so unfair that he found and fell in love with a woman who adored him and then he passed away. So shortly after they were married. So sad. Right. It's really sad. How old were you when you left the house? Let's see. It was probably 20... I want to say it was like 20, 20 or 21 I was really young. You got married at 21? I did. Listen, that was my way out of the house. Exactly. 
Exactly. Exactly. So I met, I met somebody I was working with and um, later discovered that he was the male version of my mother mm-hmm. <laughs> and married him. Yep. And how long were you married? About five years. Mm-hmm. And then he, he had his own he had his own mental illness and he was equally as emotionally abusive as my mother, not physically, but emotionally and um, verbally abusive. And you decided that you're not doing what your father did and stick around to um, be the caretaker. You said, I had it enough growing up. I deserve someone that could be on my level of understanding and I can't be a caretaker anymore. I want to be in a loving, caring relationship for me as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is amazing that it took you so short, only five years to notice that. Because sometimes people go through life and only after 20, 30 years do they realize, oh my gosh, I'm repeating my mistakes from my youth. But then they wasted their life with something that they didn't want to be with. So true. It's so true. I'm grateful I had the courage to leave when I did. Did you love him? Um, I think I loved the idea of being with him, but I maybe at the capacity that I could love then, I probably did. Did you remarry? I did. Are you still married? No. Oh, okay. And are you happily single? I am. Okay. I want to go back to your healing process. So you left the house. When did you start this journey of, okay, I need to heal from this terrible trauma. What I need a better life. I need to end the story better. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, therapy, I I had always done therapy. I'd done therapy when I was divorcing my first husband. And then I lost my mother and I was struggling. And then um, I can't remember when, I'm trying to think, maybe it was after I lost my father. I had a very dear friend of mine tell me, go and do this program called the Landmark Forum because you're really hurting and you have a lot of, you have a lot of stuff from your past. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. So I went and I did the landmark forum and that was the like that was the first step in beginning to leave the past in the past and start to create the future that I wanted. Did you always go to therapy as a girl that mom had mental illness? No, as a little girl I never went to therapy. And I think that that's something that I want people to know that if you if you're close to someone who you're the caregiver for or a child of someone with a mental illness, you need your own therapy. Like you need your own therapy to remind yourself boundaries are okay and to care for yourself. So that's just a plug. I think that I should have had right. therapy as a little girl. But back in the day was taboo. Therapy was taboo. Totally. totally right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. With therapy, you could have probably healed or, or, or not even hurt so much because you would know how not to be like, the co- feeling that you're the cause of her pain or always being ashamed of it or running away from it, mm-hmm. embra- embracing it and, and putting on what you needed to do for Michelle versus for your mom that was suffering. Yeah. Well, just even the act of separating my mother from her illness, I couldn't do that until I was much older. But imagine if I was a little girl and I was like, okay, I still love my mom. Don't love that illness. That illness makes her mean. Mm. separation could have been so helpful for me to preserve my my love and relationship with my mother. Yeah. What would you say to a little girl that came to you and said to you, my mother is suffering with mental illness? Besides cry with her. 
I know, but you don't understand. I've gotten letters from young girls who've read my book who have bipolar mothers and I cry when I see them, but they tell me, they tell me that I give them hope that they, that they will be okay. Right. Because I persevered through this. And on the other side, through a lot of self-discovery and a self-healing, I'm okay. So I would tell them to separate the two as hard as it is, how they're loved one treats them is a reflection of an illness. It's not a reflection of their love and who they are as people. It's just an illness. And what would you tell them in order to make sure they create a happy life for themselves from the beginning when they leave the house? Mm. How to not take the illness with them into the next chapter, which is so important. What would you tell them? Because so many people end up in the same place where they were, where they're running away from. So what, what do you think you were missing at the time? Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, understanding the patterns and what's familiar so you don't repeat those patterns and really having, having boundaries is vital, but then really understanding what you want, what you, what matters to you. Cause I think the biggest challenge I had was that I was never given permission to like, dislike, want something. I was always suppressed because the priority of my mother was paramount. Hmm. So really connecting to what makes you tick, verbalizing what you want without shame, embarrassment or anything, feeling guilty. Guilty is a very big, a very big issue when you love someone because you, you feel guilty because you want something or you want for yourself. Whatever it takes for you to courageously ask for what you want without embarrassment or guilt if that means therapy, if it means self-discovery to discover what you like, what makes you happy, like make that a priority. And another thing that I think is very important, and I think this is something that you probably talk about in the book, is how to break away from shame and Mm -hmm. not to live the secret and break the stigma. So we live in, compared to 10 years ago, we're a little bit more advanced, thank God. And uh, we realize the stigma is killing more than helping. What would you tell kids that are living with a loved one. I'm, I'm talking to kids specifically because you were a child. And yeah. so what do you tell people, uh, kids that are struggling with either a brother, a sister, a parent, an uncle, a grandparent that are very close to them, that's, that they're so embarrassed of it and they're living this big secret? How can they break the secret? Yeah, I think um, this goes for children and for, for adults who shy away from a conversation about mental health. The brain is just another organ. And when we start to relate to mental illness as it being a disease of the brain, and we relate to it as just another organ that needs support, Mm -hmm. just it needs additional support, then we neutralize this negative connotation that the brain is like this, this, you know, oh, this, this terrible thing that when it gets sick, no, it's just another organ. You break your leg, you put it in a cast, you give it support and you get well. Mm-hmm. The same thing. So I think, you know, I think we have a better job. There's a better job that needs to be done with our youth and their relationship to mental health. And it all starts with them understanding that the brain is just another organ. Mm-hmm. And and that's just what happens. You sometimes need more support. So you're saying, let me understand this. So you're saying once the person, the child, the adult understands that it's just another organ, the shame should disappear. Yeah. 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 You take the charge out of it. And right. take the charge out of it and, and the embarrassment out of it. Right. 
and have that courage to speak up in the beginning. And yes. and from your experience, the more you spoke up, the better it felt. It wasn't the worst, totally. right? It was the isolation. And I will, I will say the isolation of having to navigate it by myself in my room at night when my mother was sitting in the other room crying mm. was the most horrible thing. So if you have one or two people you can confide in and talk to and sh- and unload that story with yeah that makes all the difference right so find the youth group like you did find the support find your best friend and it doesn't have to be a forum online of bragging about it because we can be sensitive to the person that's going through it if they're going through the shame but find that support that you could do um you can hold on to that helps you Mm-hmm. break away from that shame and open the conversation. And who, and I find this and tell me if I'm correct with, if it happens with you, the more I talk about, the more I realize that almost every family has mental illness in some shape or form. You have no idea. <laughs> Since I released my book, how many people, and just, you know, it's such a beautiful thing. I have a, a, a mentor of mine who used to tell me, Michelle, just share what you're up to and share who you are. Right. And that creates a pathway and an opening for other people to be who they are. So when I shared my story, it was almost like the book gave me permission to initiate an uncomfortable discussion. Yeah, The amount of people who were either affected by mental illness, suicide, um, depression, you know, had a, had a loved one or how was diagnosed, the amount of people that came out of the woodwork to share back to me mm. was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. And, and, you know, if I could be a catalyst to cause more of those open exchanges, then all of the writing was worth it. Yeah. And you said that you worked for the pharmaceutical world for 19 years, and now you're changing your career um, and your passion to break the stigma on mental health. Can you tell us what's up next? Sure, sure. So, you know, I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan. I've done so much of his work. And he says, you know, the two most important days of your life are the day that you're born and the day you figure out why you're born. Mm -hmm. And I think through the release of my book, I've realized the reason why I was born. And that is to be a catalyst for change and really help remove the stigma. So what I'm up to is really using my story and my deep connection and commitment to removing suffering for those with invisible disabilities in the workplace and helping cultures within workplaces become more understanding, compassionate, and accepting of employees that deal with mental illness. I have chills you saying this right now because I just posted this morning. I have chills, chills. This morning, I posted on a group, on a private group of a mastermind. And I said, maybe we're doing it all wrong. Maybe we need to start from schools and the workplace to open the conversations and leadership needs to come and say, we need to talk mental health. It needs to come from the hierarchy, bring it into that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to discuss it. I have the chills. (laughs) So that's your next thing going to the workforce. Oh, I love it. So how are you implementing it? Do you have a plan already? Uh, So I have been fortunate to be introduced to amazing people who are already in this space making a difference in corporate cultures. So I am excited. Uh, Next week, I'm actually going to Canada to get trained um, 
on a program that a company out, out of Canada is, has been implementing in corporate cultures to create a peer community of support. So I'm really excited to be trained in that, to be able to bring those types of programs to corporate culture here in the U.S. Yeah. And you um, know, I interviewed someone from Canada and he was saying that they're bringing the whole idea of mental health. He, his friend um, died from suicide and he himself suffered from depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and his his wife and his daughter. And he was saying that Canada is, is bringing more awareness to the workforce. Yeah. And I'm actually shocked that, that Canada is more advanced than U.S., in the mental health world, because I would think Canadians are more reserved, very quiet, more than, and Americans are out there emotional and, and verbal and expressive, and, and they're more advanced than us. It seems to show up that way, right? <laughs> wow. Proud of you. Proud uh, of you. Thank That's you. Awesome. There, there is also something else that I'm up to. Yeah, <laughs> I sure. had I need to tell you this because I'm really excited about this. So I had created a program called a program dedicated to children understanding what it meant to nourish the body, nourish the mind. Yeah. And so I'm doing a spin-off program focusing on mental health mm. for youth. Mm. And so we recently ran a program, a mental health workshop in a school delivered as a health fair where we hit 700 children in one day, giving them proactive tools on how to manage their emotions and ways and resources that they could use to become mentally healthy and mentally strong and resilient. So I'm really excited because um, that program I'm I'm committed to bringing to more schools because especially in the state of New Jersey, we're not there yet with a mental health curriculum or a requirement yet in the state. And I think this is a great opportunity to reach youth. So I'm going to do that. It's so important. I was I was, I'm telling you this morning, I wrote about how to bring to the workplace and the schools. And I feel that that's where it's going to start. When we're very little, when we're vulnerable, when we're soaking up how to do math, how to read science, Mm -hmm. this is part of life more than anything, more than anything. There are more deaths to to mental health than any other thing. Yep. So So we need to open this conversation in school, not wait until we face it in life. Let's open the conversation in school. Let's give them tools to see, to to diagnose it. Is that a word, diagnose it? Yeah. Just have the courage to raise their hand and say, I need help before before it's too late. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's amazing. You know, Bring Change to Mind in California yes. is I going, think. are doing the schools things and, and going and making programs. I believe that in 10 years, it's going to be a part of the curriculum. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's do this, yep. Michelle. Let's bring it back to school <laughs> together. Maybe I'll be a part of it because I'm so passionate about bringing it back to school and educating little kids to talk about pain, inner pain, struggles, just be vulnerable. We have to bring Brene Brown's books to second grade. Vulnerability is okay. It's what's going to save us. Mm -hmm. Conversation about mental health will bring more love, break the stigma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Are you planning a book book tour with your book or it's, it's out already for a year? 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm always open to doing um, public speaking and sharing my story. I've been to a couple of schools and some local clubs. I love sharing my story because it gets other people to talk about mental health. So always open for that. And then, you know, always open to talking to people about, you know, maybe they want to be the catalyst that brings this conversation to their workplace. Right. Right. And if if they are looking to to kind of say, hey, HR, can we pay attention to this? Yes. Absolutely reach out to me. I'm happy awesome. to have that conversation and empower you to be the change agent. Okay. Whoever's here, a leader in a community, reach out to Michelle. Reach out to Michelle. Read her book first, Breaking into my life, breaking into my life. Oh, this, this art, this art. I think I'm going to get a poster of this because I love it so much. It's just so beautiful. So beautiful. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing, for doing the big work, for still smiling after so much loss and pain, so much, so much. And yeah, you're totally a story of hope. Totally. You're totally success, hope, um, healing. Thank you. Look at Michelle, read her book, grab her book, be inspired. If you know someone that has a loved one that's suffering, recommend this book. It will help them so, so much get some tips and um, inspiration to, to keep on moving, keep on trying, finding that spark, finding that life. I have one more question to ask you that I ask everyone. What does hope mean to you? Wow. Hope is creating what you want for yourself in your life. Wow. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. Because with all the boundaries that you have, like the gates and the doors that you think are there, you really have the ability to create what you want. Absolutely. The pen is in our hands. I love that. Is there anything else you would like to share? No. Thank you for having me. Thank you so, so much for sharing, for being here, for being courageous. You're welcome. Um, Listeners, if you want to hear more about Michelle, is there a place that they can find you online? Sure. You'll go to uh, www.breakingintomylife.com. That's my website. You can contact me there. I love hearing from people. So please reach out to me. Please reach out to her and um, leave a comment on iTunes, what you think about this episode. If there's anything you want to share, if you're, if you're a product of some kind of bipolar in your life, in yourself, um, if you're going through something that you would like to share a tip or a pain or maybe a question, please go to iTunes or in our group. Hope to recharge the community on Facebook. Go and share either on Michelle's website or on our community. Join our community. Let's open this conversation. Michelle is opening the conversation. I'm opening the conversation. Join the conversation. Together is better with mental health. Let's break the stigma. Thank you for joining us here. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.